0: You've likely heard the, the warning, and I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing. You should not stare at the sun, okay? Don't stare at the sun. And in fact, no matter who does it, no matter who looks directly at the sun, you should not stare at the sun. Let me repeat, no matter who does it, do not stare at the sun. There are some devastating effects if you were to look directly at the sun, When you look at it, the ultraviolet rays flood your retinas and literally destroy it from the inside out, burning away your vision to see. In fact, the the damage can be so long-lasting. It could be upwards of a year or even the rest of your life where you no longer have the ability to focus. You can continue to see blurry spots in your eyes, and and you would forever suffer the consequences of being, in some ways, partially, uh, partially blinded. But this is actually the opposite of what I told you to do yesterday. Yesterday, I told you to stare at the unmitigated glory of God. I told you to stop and and don't just look superficially, but to look and stare at the glory of God. And not just to look away after taking a quick glance, but to linger there and let that change and stir your affection in a whole new way. But as you've already learned and as you guys have gone through your small groups, you realize that staring at the sun is actually injurious to you. It hurts. It causes you to feel a certain sense of smallness, fear, terror. There is a spiritual injury that takes place when you look at the Lord in this way. And so now, today, we're going to have to look at how we clean up the mess. Because just like there is a physical ramification of your looking at the sun with your physical eyes, there is a spiritual ramification when you look at the glory of God with your spiritual eyes and realize that it's not all sunshine, rainbows, lollipops, and butterflies. In fact, there is a great sense of pain and uh, a shocking aftermath that comes from seeing God for who he is. You might walk away spiritually wrecked, understanding you are a sinner who is in direct contradiction to who the holy God is of the scriptures. If you were to look at the sun, again, I'm just telling you not to do that. If you were to look at the sun, there are several treatments that could potentially help you. One of them would be surgery. There's vitamins and different supplements you can take to help uh, heal your eye, and that's well and good. But for your spiritual sight that's just been wrecked, there's only one solution that will ever satisfy. Yesterday, we talked about the fact that you are kind of in this, this spiritual hole. God is helping you to see through Isaiah chapter 6 that God is different. He is the real sovereign king. He uh, He has awful holiness that is glorious and we should tremble before his absolute righteousness. And now that I put you in that hole, I want to show you how God digs Isaiah out of the same hole that you are now in. Let me tell you, there's only one option for you. Whether you are a Christian or not tonight, the message is the same for all of us. And what you're about to hear in this sermon is really why Christians love the gospel. If you wonder sometimes why mature Christians seem to get it and you don't, it's because they better understand how great their sin is before this great and holy God. The holier you are, the more you realize you are a sinner. The more you understand who God is, the more you realize who you are and how far different you are from him. Sinner or saint, Christian or none, the message is the same. Because of our great sin, our only hope is a great Savior, and that's what this message is tonight. I've only got two points for you, and I don't think it's going to take me as long as it did last night, but let's just see how this goes. Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to look at just a few quick verses to see how God remedies the situation of wrecking Isaiah. In fact, the use of the term wreck is good because here's how Isaiah puts it in the first verse here. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he says, and I said, and remember in response, like, the, the, the temple is shaking, the foundations, there's an earthquake of sorts, there's smoke in the temple. And I told you, it was a smoke of God's judgment. God is pure, righteous, and holy. And because of that, like a consuming fire, everything around him, it's almost like it can't even maintain integration. He disintegrates things around him because of his awful holiness. The smoke of his judgment begins to rise. Isaiah, who just beheld the glory of God, now says, woe is me, which is basically to pronounce judgment upon himself. Woe is me. Um, to, to, to use the common vernacular, okay, and I don't recommend this, but let me just help you understand. Today, when people are terrified or afraid or they're, they're emotionally moved, what do people say today? They actually blaspheme God's name they say OMG, right? When people are upset or terrified or they're just emotionally moved, they say OMG, but they don't say that. Or they might say, they might say OMG, but they might say actually God's name himself. And yet, that's kind of what's happening here for Isaiah. He's emotionally disturbed. He is so moved by what he just saw. It is, Lord, no, help me, I'm sorry, woe is me, I'm dead, I'm wrecked, I'm totaled, God. Uh, and he says, like, I am lost, I'm lost. For, he gives two reasons here, for, I'm a man of unclean lips. And not only that, but I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. What would Isaiah think about the the time that we live in today? He says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord of angelic beings, the one who oversees all of creation. Isaiah pronounces judgment on himself because he is now seeing for the first time the clarity of who God is. And I want you to notice something here. Okay, notice here in the first part of verse five, um, actually the second part of verse five, he says, and, and, and notice, think back to last night. He says here, my eyes have seen who was not looking at the Lord last night. The perfect burning ones called the seraphim. They were wise enough to not look at the Lord remember they used, they had six wings, two they covered their eyes, two they covered their feet, and two they flew. They weren't looking at the Lord, but Isaiah does. And he realizes, not even close to the seraphim, that he is so different, and he's sinful, that he suddenly trembles from the inside and, and says to himself, "Oh no, I'm wrecked." We have to start where we ended yesterday. And I want to help walk you through how Isaiah deals with some of the ramifications, the shocking aftermath of coming in direct contact with the nuclear bomb of God's glory. Point number one, you need to survey the depths of your own sinfulness. The word survey is important. Survey suggests that it's a cursory glance, okay? You're not we're not doing an exhaustive study of your sinfulness. We could talk a lot about that because all of us are sinful from birth, as scripture says. And I want you just to survey your sinfulness. And I want to make a couple points, a couple highlights here based on the way that Isaiah sees it, the way that Isaiah interprets this information here. He, he understands what's happening. And I want to help you see that uh, in a very similar sense. God sees, God sees through Isaiah to the core of his being. And because of that, Isaiah trembles. There's technology now. I don't know if you know this, but this is terrifying. There is technology now that can actually see through buildings and clouds, walls. There are satellites that are far above us that can actually look down into this building right now and see us. That's terrifying. That is absolutely jaw-droppingly terrifying. And I'm sure that technology is only going to get better. But here's the thing. God's image of us is just as crystal clear. In fact, let me say it's just a little better as well because not only does God see us with crystal clarity, he sees inside of us and that should be something that, that terrifies you because he penetrates the walls of your thoughts and emotions. Not a single thing that you've thought, said, or have done in your life is hidden from the sight of God. And here's ultimately what that means. And let me start from the back half of this verse here. Look at, the, look at this. The back half of verse 5 back half of verse five says this, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why would that disturb him? Well, number one, last night we saw that God is holy, but number two, think about this. You have just witnessed divine perfection You've seen something so outside the realm of your understanding that it it has washed over all of your senses and has literally just undone you on the inside. Isaiah sees by looking at God, I am not okay. In fact, there is something desperately wrong with me. He says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and I can now see the great disparity between us. When I survey the depths of my own sinfulness, I realize that I am not good enough. You're not good enough. Man, young person, I know this is painful, but this is also liberating. Oh, I, was, I was doing some Google searching. In fact, Amazon. I was looking at Amazon, trying to look at all the various books that are super popular today, and some of the books that you might know of, um, there are four books with the title You Are Enough, okay? There's another book with the title called You're More Than Enough, because <laughs> you're, you're enough is, was one thing, but you're more than enough in this other one. Uh, here's another book title, You Are a Blank Awesome Mom. Okay. Same concept, right? You're more than enough it? you are. You're a blank awesome mom is what that one says. Another book that you might have heard about that's exceedingly popular today is You Are a Bad Person. But substitute person with the actual word they use. You, might have heard of it. You might not. But the point of it is that you are amazing. You're awesome. You're capable of all that you want to do. You need to manifest uh, life into your life. You need to manifest good things in your world. And the way that you do that is to think positive about yourself. Stop thinking lowly about yourself because really when it comes down to it, you are enough. You are an amazing person with amazing qualities and you are enough. Well, if that's true, then why is it so fundamentally true that everyone in the world knows they're not enough? If what you're saying is true, book writer, why is it that every single person in this room knows the feeling of not being enough? And the reality is, the simple answer is that we're not enough. We are not. And here's here's the thing. I don't want you to think that I'm simply trying to, to make these people sound bad. I think they come from a good place. I think they genuinely want to help. But their help is like going into a cancer ward and putting band-aids on them. Let me help you with your cancer. Here's a band-aid. Does that really help? Well, the band-aid has Mickey Mouse on it, so you might it might make you feel better for a second. Look at the Mickey Mouse, it's it's got a great graphic. It's 3D. It's Mickey Mouse on a band-aid. And yet that's kind of what's happening here with books like this. That's what's happening when you're watching Instagrammers or TikTokers who are simply trying to psychologize you into thinking differently about yourself. Scripture doesn't mince words. You're not enough. in fact, before the perfect beauty and majesty and glory of God, you are desperately wicked. You're not enough. Young person, let me say this gently and, and stay with me, okay? Stay with me. Here we go. Stay with me. The reason you feel dirty and sinful and guilty Because you are. The reason you have moments of self-loathing is because you are a rebellious sinner who is in a wrong relationship with the God who made you. You're made for God. And the reason you struggle with those kinds of feelings, those feelings of inadequacy, the feelings of not having that sense of self-worth, is because you're made for something more than you you're made to be in a relationship with god and when that relationship is not intact your soul feels it your soul hurts the books that you read that psychologize you into thinking better about yourself are putting a spiritual band-aid on the cancer that your soul is suffering through understand this understand that god wants you to realize that the reason you feel broken is because you are your guilt, your shame, your self-worth is distorted. And yet at the same time, it's a result of your broken sinfulness and rebellion. This is why verses like this tend to pop up when we have these conversations. Uh, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. If you think about the standard of God's perfection being the infinite perfect standard of being this high and you come this high, Like There's a disparity there that you just can't meet, and you know this. When you sin, you do violence to your own soul. When you live for yourself, you are essentially living against the grain of how God designed you, and so you suffer on the inside. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And just in case it wasn't entirely clear, the standard of God's perfect righteousness is perfection. So even if you're a really great kid, and many of you are, I mean, I know you guys, some of you better than others, but many of you guys are great kids. A students, you're respectful of your parents, you guys have your extracurricular activities together, you're not doing drugs, you're not going out to drinking parties and binging and things like that. You're generally a good kid. But here's what scripture says. Whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become guilty of all of it. In other words, it is, this is an all or nothing calculation in God's part. When God says to come to me and draw near to me, his goal is that you are perfectly righteous in every single way. Your thoughts have to be perfect. Your feelings have to be perfect. Your actions have to be perfect. And anything less than that perfect standard renders you incapable of approaching the perfect God. So if you're a good kid, you're one of the kids that you, you, you do well before Man, people like you and respect you because you're a good kid. Know that God wants you to be more than a good kid. He demands perfection. And if you say, Well, Pastor Rod, then I'm, no one's good enough. And I would say you're on the right track. In your own mind, young person, freely admit and confess I'm not good enough. In fact, let's drive the, the nail, drive the, 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 the knife a little deeper. It's not just that you're not good enough, you're actually more sinful than you know. In verse 5, the last part, uh, we, we said, Isaiah has seen the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts, but in the middle of verse 5, he says this, I am lost, I am lost Uh, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He understands that his interaction with the world around him is also fundamentally broken. Notice that he doesn't point to what he does. He's not saying, I'm stealing from people. You know, I beat down old ladies for, for, their, for their milk money. He doesn't say anything like, he says, my lips are unclean. Think about that. If you're going to judge yourself according to standards of righteousness, I, I can guarantee for most of us, we're not going to point to our words because our words are actually going to give us away. Let me, let me explain. Scripture has a way of saying that your words are intrinsically tied to the condition of your heart. Your words are intrinsically tied to the condition of your heart. So when you say things from your mouth, what's really happening is that your heart is being revealed. God is showing you you. Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 12. He says, How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The content of your heart is revealed by the content of your mouth. So here's the thing. Some people might say, like, well, uh, when I said that thing to you, I didn't mean that. I think Jesus would disagree. You might have spoken rashly. You might have spoken quickly, but rest assured you've spoken truthfully according to your heart. I didn't mean that. No, you you did. You did mean that. And when you're uncomfortable with acknowledging that, it's because you don't like what your heart is showing you. When you sass back to your dad or your mom or you, you know, in your head, you're cursing someone out because they made you angry. Later, don't say to yourself, I didn't mean that. No, you did mean that. Young person, you meant it, and that came from your heart. And Scripture wants you to see, God wants you to see, that inside your person, inside who you are, you are more sinful than you realize. Those little infractions, those words that you communicate in your head but not from your mouth, that matters. Because even from God's point of view, it's not even just what you say, it's even also what you think. Everything that you say reveals your heart. What you think reveals your heart as well. Romans 3 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. Think about this. Uh, Paul says that for those who don't know God, their throat, their mouths communicate death, not life. When they say things to you, it's not words of affirmation and encouragement and, and scripture. No, they, their words bring death. Their words are an open grave. It's not just death. It's putrid death, rotting corpses and flesh, falling off the bone. That's what your words are like when your words are not filtered by the Holy Spirit. He says, they use their tongues to deceive, which is to say, of course, you're lying. Young person, just stop for a second here. And again, let the knife go deeper in your heart. If you're feeling conviction, let it burn. Let it burn. This is is important. Do you tell the truth in your conversations? Do you tell the truth to yourself in your own head? Are you willing to communicate to yourself what you really are, who you really are? If you can't tell yourself the truth, how can you be expected to have these true conversations with other people? He goes on, the venom of asps is under their lips, the venom of snakes. When they speak, they bite, it hurts. They don't say things that are helpful, it's harmful. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This is the fruit of someone who is alienated from God. Their mouth speaks things that are unwholesome. It is not a blessing, it is a curse. It is not a joy, it is bitter, complaining, full of dirtiness. I referenced several sermons back. I don't even know how long ago it was at this point, but several sermons back about the kind of music that's popular today. And I even referenced some of the most uh, feminizing and empowering songs of the day. They're filthy, and I wouldn't want to touch them with a 10 foot pole. They're disgusting. Um, and even some of the songs that are clipped on TikTok or other media, like the songs that are being used for that are songs that are just dirty. Like they're dirty. And so Isaiah says, look, I recognize my lips are unclean, but I'm also in a sea of uncleanness all around me. There's dirty, foul language. There's people that are saying things that are untrue. They're saying OMG, but it's not not because they love the Lord. It's because they're using his name as a curse word. They're dragging it through the mud. No one would tolerate that. No one should tolerate that, but they do. I already made mention of this, but again, it's not just about your words. It's also about your heart, but it's about the words that are even carelessly spoken. You ever said something that you're like, oh man, oops. Careless words. Jesus cares so much about the way that you conduct yourself that even careless words will be brought before him in judgment. Careless words, which come from a careless heart, which again is revealed in the pages of scripture. He says in Matthew chapter five, verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has committed adultery with her, there you go, in his heart. So again, it's not just the words that you say. It's even the intention of your heart. If you're intending to gossip instead of, you know, share information, if you're intending to tear someone down, if you're intending the wrong thing in your heart, Jesus says that that is condemnable. Got to understand that your heart, young person, is the thing that makes you right before God and the thing that makes you guilty before God. Your words simply reveal that. If I could be so kind as your pastor, and I just want you to, if I am your pastor, please hear the, the concern from my heart when I say, you gotta know that you're more sinful than you know. If you see sin in your life and the spirit convicts you, great, praise God for that. But no, there's a sea, and ocean more of sin in your life and you're just holding a cup of it. God is gracious. He doesn't show it all to us at one time, but notice that your heart, and this is just a quick graphic to help you understand this, your heart has multiple dimensions, the way that you think, the way that you will, the things that you are naturally loving, your affection, all these things work together for the the, the kind of heart that you have before God, whether it is justified in His sight or guilty. The last phrase here I wanna focus on is the first part of Isaiah 6, 5. He says, and I said, woe is me. He pronounces judgment upon himself because he knows if he were to be judged by the standard of God's moral perfection, he would in fact be doomed and have no recourse, no option before him except to simply be destroyed. He's aware of this. Last night, you guys talked about this in your small groups. Let me just quickly encapsulate some of that. Perfect holiness of God that cannot dwell with the impurity and unrighteousness of man. And so that's why he says in passages like 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9, that Jesus is going to be revealed in flaming fire. He's not coming to, uh, to offer up roses and lollipops and to say, let's all just make peace here. No, he's coming inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of, and here's, here's an important word here, eternal, eternal, forever destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I want you to notice two things in this. Number one, the gospel is a command. It's, he says he doesn't obey the gospel, but the gospel is a command to come to him, to return to him, to receive him. But on top of that, that eternal destruction puts you away from God's presence. And this is where we get the concept of it. To go to hell is to be away from his presence. And I would say yes in a sense. You're away from God's presence in his good, noble, common grace sense. But make no mistake, hell has God there, but it is God's wrath being poured out. It is his presence of judgment. Right now, all of us are experiencing God's common grace. The sunshine came out today. Uh, there's, There's some snow on the ground. We've been able to enjoy laughter together and fun. That's God's common grace. In hell, in eternal destruction, God's common grace is removed. All of his good gifts are withheld. And all you get from God in the eternal destruction is God's pointed, focused wrath measured in perfect, just proportion to the life of sin that you lived. Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46, I plucked them both out for you. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the, here we go again, eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. I highlight for you a couple words again that I wanted you to see, and those words are, of course, eternality, the eternal nature of the punishment that God delivers. Now think to yourself would it be just of God to punish eternally for something that's just a minor infraction in this life? If you pushed my daughter over, I would be pretty mad, but I would not punish you eternally. Okay? When it comes to our interaction with God, His standard of righteousness is perfect and good. And so when we sin against him, not only once, but a million different times in our lives. And again, as I'm trying to show you here, you're more sinful than you realize. So you're sinning a lot more against God than you even know. Now, the more you sin against God, the greater the wrath is stored up against you. And that wrath is not dispensed in one singular moment, but over a continuum, a continuum of moments that extend all the way through eternity. Sinning against me yields little punishment. Sinning against a police officer yields greater punishment. Sinning against the president yields even greater punishment. The difference between us is our position. When you sin against the ruler, the king of all creation, the sovereign ruler, as we learned last night, the only right and proportional punishment is eternal conscious torment. One more, Revelation 20 the devil who had received deceived them rather was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A few verses lower here says that then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, this, the lake of fire. And here's the clincher: And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. eternal conscious torments and just proportion and response to our sinfulness, God judges justly the wicked, and he will do it in perfect measure. Hitler, when he shot himself in the head to escape mankind's justice, is not escaping mankind's justice in totality. Rest assured, right now, unless Hitler was miraculously saved before he committed suicide, he is standing before God and being justly punished for his sin of murdering 11 million people in horrific ways. Now, it's easy for us to look at him and say, that makes sense. I understand that. But what about me, pastor? I'm a nice kid. I'm a nice person. And again, I want you to see from scripture, your sin is greater than you realize. The king is higher than you'll ever know. And that leaves you in a place just like Isaiah, where you say, woe is me. What must I do? This is the harsh reality that you and I have to see. This is the most difficult sermon that I preach to you, and I hate these because they're painful, and they hurt in my soul, as it's sure for some of you. It's hurting your soul to say, this is terrible. I don't like this. Why are we even having to talk about this? I want to hear happy things. Young person, you need to hear the sad things before the happy news makes sense. This needs to be embraced by you, okay? I know you hate this. Embrace it. Let it stir you. Let it hurt you. Let it affect you. Because now, against the backdrop of all of this ugliness, now we're going to see what makes grace amazing. We're going to see why this makes so much sense when we see Jesus on the scene. We just talked about our great sin means that we need a great Savior. And that's what we get to see a picture of in Isaiah 6, but the full picture of the HD 8K version of in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. Let me show it to you in Isaiah 6. He hints at it, but you'll see the elements here. Look at Isaiah 6, verses 6 and 7, and we're going to hit a crescendo now. This is where I've been wanting to go all weekend long. We finally get to go here. Take a look. He says, woe is me. I'm cursed. I'm done. It's over for me. Curtains. Stick a fork in me. I'm finished. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is amazing grace. Because here, even though you don't see this, God dispatches the angelic host. He says, go grab a coal from the altar where there were sacrifices taking place, where blood was being shed, where the innocent was dying for the guilty. Take one of those coals and apply it to the place where Isaiah confessed, right? He confessed, my lips are unclean. And so he takes the coal and puts it on his lips, which would have burned by the way. fill your lips. They're sensitive. Your lips are sensitive. He's taking a burning coal, a real coal, puts it on his lips, cauterizes it. He says, you're guilt is atoned for. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Isaiah, your sin is not greater than the grace of the Savior. Let me put this coal on your lips so that you might know that though your sin is wicked and grievous. It has been paid for on this altar. Something else has gone in your place to take the penalty that you deserve. And I'm going to apply that to you. And all you do, Isaiah, you just stand there and receive it. Isaiah did nothing, right? He's, he's, he's wrecked. He has nothing he can do. He can't plead his case. He's guilty. There's nothing for Isaiah to do. And so all he does is stand there and God applies the coal to his lips and Isaiah suddenly receives God's forgiveness and grace in ways that he probably never even fathomed before that moment in his life. Young person, point number two, receive the grace, the amazing grace and mercy of God. Let's make grace great again. Let's, let's see this for what it really is. And let's celebrate the fact that even though we are great sinners, God is a great Savior. And he is ever ready, standing almost at the, at the present, waiting just to give you grace and mercy. If you would just allow yourself to receive it. It's a gift. It's a gift. And yet, I read a story about the kind of gifts that some people receive. There are some gifts that are hard to get from people, right? There are some gifts that are just hard to receive from people. Uh, if, you get a, if you go to a, invite people to your birthday party and, and, and someone rolls up and they, they have this box that they give to you and you open it up in front of everybody and you open it up and you realize, oh, it's a six pack of deodorant. Okay, thanks. Put the gift down and another person comes and gives you their gift. You open up this heavy package, you know, oh, great, this is going to you see, okay, it's an Amazon box, it could be anything at this point. You open it up and it's a hundred ways on how to lose weight. Okay, thanks, yeah. <laughs> Some gifts require you to acknowledge and be honest about the fact that you're not all together. The gift suggests that there are things about you that need to change. And the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross for sin is perhaps the hardest gift for most people to receive because it means having to say, yes, I'm broken. Yes, I'm not okay. Yes, I need your help. And I'm utterly incapable of doing it myself. Please step in and do it for me. This is the gift of Jesus Christ. This is the gift of amazing grace. This is the gift that God offers every single person who would but yield their lives to him. You should receive this. Why? Well, God's uh, amazing mercy and grace is To be received because he's provided a great sacrifice. Now, in the text here, you don't get to see the sacrifice. It's just suggested, right? Because he he takes the tongs. uh, So he the, the angel takes the tongs, gets something from the altar, the coal from the altar. You don't know what's died there. You don't know if there was a bull or an ox. You don't know what's died. But in the New Testament, we know full well who has died. We know full well that what is gone before you is not a lamb, it's not an ox, it's not a donkey. It is King Jesus, one and the same. The one who is ruling, the sovereign ruler and king, he comes and takes your place willingly. You might receive his salvation. Why? Why? Well, because he wants to bring you back into right relationship with God. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that we and him might become the righteousness of God this is called penal substitutionary atonement the righteous dying for the unrighteous the criminal the criminal penalty being applied to the innocent one Jesus dies in our place he's the sacrifice on the cross he's the one who goes to the altar uh, on the cross beam Galatians 3:13 says it this way Galatians 3:13. You advance it, please. Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, can we? Thank you. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus took the curse for us. Jesus is the one who died in our place. He's the great sacrifice for you, young person. For you. Don't think about Jesus as some distant figure in a dark place, in a dark land that you'll never know. Think about the man Christ Jesus in the flesh going to the cross for your sake. Christian, I'm talking to you as well. Don't ignore this. Celebrate this. This is why we love the gospel. Jesus dying in our place is all that we celebrate. It is all that we love. It is the most precious truth that any of us can know. And to let it simply wash over us without affecting us is to miss the point entirely. This is what makes Christianity special. This is what makes life incredible. Because we have a Savior. We have a God who has stepped in our shoes, taken our place, and he himself but bears the wrath for all of our sin, no matter how small you might think it is, which is why I spent so much time building the case against us. We are utterly sinful and wicked. When you see that, and then you see this, things make sense. Jesus said, Peter, who will love me more? The one who forgives The one who I forgive of a little debt or the one who I forgive of a big debt? Peter says, Well, I suppose the one who had the larger debt. He said, You've answered rightly, Peter. The one who understands that they've been forgiven a massive debt will love Jesus more. The one who thinks they have only but a little debt will love Jesus very little. Jesus says, I came to call not the righteous, but the sinner. I came to to heal the sick, not the healthy. And the irony about that is that none of us is healthy. None of us is righteous. And one of the reasons why your soul continues to stick at this point, young person, especially for those of you who are not yet Christians, is because you're unwilling to confess and agree with what Scripture says, that you are utterly sinful and you are far more broken than you realize. But again, I'm begging you. Stare, see, and look at Jesus, lifted high on a cross, the one who became a curse for us, whose body was bloodied and bruised, stripped his back bare, exposing his organs and his ligaments and all that gory stuff on the backside of his body as he received uh, scourging and then having his hands nailed to the cross. And that's not even the worst of it because his physical punishment is only part of the whole The punishment that he received is physical, yes, but there is a spiritual element to it where the wrath of the Father is being poured out and tormented upon Jesus. Jesus willingly goes there for your your sin and for mine. You want to know what love is? This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his father, excuse me, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. word propitiation, essentially the word atonement. The father sends a willing son to be atonement for your sin and for mine. Bill Gates came to you and said, I'd like to pay for your college education. Takes out his checkbook, writes a check of $100,000 for you and says, there you go. Cash it, go wherever you want. Fully on me you would be thankful. And I would trust that you would be, you'd write him a thank you letter. You might send him a picture with your face on it, doing a thumbs up at your school. You would be thankful for that. And you should be. But when you think about Bill Gates, he'll say, well, the guy's like got billions more. This is a drop in the bucket for him. But what if, on the other hand, one of your small group leaders said, you know what? I believe in you. And I want to send you to college. And I want to pay the whole thing. Uh, but I'm a penniless small group leader. I have very little to my name. So what I'm going to do is liquidate all my accounts. I'm going to sell my car. I'm going to sell all of my belongings in order to raise the funds that you need. I'm going to sell everything I got. I'm going to sell my family heirlooms. I'm going to sell my house. Everything. Giving it all up so that you can go to college. You'd feel different, same amount of money probably, but you would feel much different about your small group leader who gave everything for you versus Bill Gates who gave something for you. That's a lot of money, but for a billionaire, it's like, well, it's not, not a whole lot. Jesus didn't give you uh, the Walmart special, okay? This is not bargain bin atonement where you go to Walmart, you see the $5 case of you know all these DVDs that nobody cares about. This is priceless, precious blood that is the most expensive thing in all the universe because Jesus is the most rare being in all the universe. He's the only God. He dies on the cross for your sins, not bargain bin atonement. This is priceless, precious blood poured and spilled on your behalf. How do you feel about that? That ought to get you excited. That's the kind of thing that Christians get pumped about. Jesus paid it all because Jesus gave it all. He held nothing back. It was all poured out on your behalf. You ought to receive this amazing grace and mercy because it was through a great and costly sacrifice. And not only that, God has granted a great salvation through what Jesus has done on your behalf. This is a great salvation that was accomplished and atoned in his own blood. Let me show you something that's amazing. I was reading this the other day, and I thought, this blows me away. Think about this. It's not responsible. Can you advance me to the next slide? And I press it a couple times. It might go forward a few. Is it there. Okay, thank you. It says this. Yep. Okay, sorry. Okay, 23. Here we go. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Okay, so simple, right? There are lots of priests because when one dies, another one has to take over but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently, never dies, never ends, because he continues forever. Jesus never dies. We talked about that last night, right? He doesn't die. He is always and forever extensive, expansive in his being. And to, to even further, he says, verse 25, consequently, as a result of this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, he never dies. He lives to make intercession for them. The sins that you've committed past, Gone, done, dealt with. The sins that you commit today and tomorrow and when you're 80, still dealt with because Jesus still lives. He still intercedes for you. He is still effective in his priesthood because even though we die, he doesn't die. Even though his blood is shed once and for all, that blood is effective for all eternity in time. Your sins never, ever, ever will stand before you and King Jesus. Young person, I don't know you from Adam. Some of you, many of you, I know, I know about you. But let's for a moment just do a thought experiment here, okay? Suppose for a moment that you are that kid that went to all of those massage parlors and killed those women. I, I would hate to hear about that for any of you. I would visit you in prison. And you know the thing I would bring to you? You know what I would bring? I'd bring you the gospel. The same exact message. I would say, young man or young woman, repent of your sin and thrust yourself on the mercy of King Jesus, who always lives to make intercession on your behalf. There is a response on your part. I'm not saying that God would not be angry with sin. I'm not saying that God would suddenly just be like, okay, cool, yeah, you killed some ladies, no big deal. It's a big deal. But what I want you to see is not only... Where grace abounds, or where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Whatever sin you commit in your future, and I'm not giving you license here, Romans 6 tells us that because God gives us grace does not mean that we can now sin any way we want. But here's the thing, no matter what sin you commit in the future, if you're a Christian, it's forgiven. That is a disturbing and amazing, wonderful, terrifying earth-shattering kind of thought. And it's free for the taking. The salvation that Jesus offers is for every single one of you. Christian, this is the kind of thing that you meditate on. Young man, you want to fight sin? You want to to finally defeat lust? These are the truths that you implant in your soul and you preach to yourself over and over and over again until you battle that dragon and slay it once and for all. Young lady, you want to finally get over feeling like you're never going to be as pretty or as smart or as popular as a next gal. You want to get over feeling anxiety because of who you are and why you can't be the way that you should be and why you're so irreparably broken. Keep your eyes not on you. Stop looking at you in the mirror. Look at Jesus. Point your attention on the only one who can heal the deep wounds of your soul. You pray the gospel, you preach the gospel, and you let that change you. You think about Jesus dying in your place and you realize, look, when I understand who Jesus is, when I understand what he's done for me, that it is not a bargain bin kind of atonement, I can look at me and say, look, Satan, I don't care what kind of sins you bring to my mind, the things that I've said, the things that I've done. No, it's on Jesus now. It's been forgiven. I don't have to think about that. I'm not going to let myself live in the past of my sin and shame. In fact, my shame, the things that I've done in the past or said in the past, things that I've done that make me feel dirty on the inside, I can even give that to Jesus. And no, Jesus on the cross is sufficient to pay for that. I don't have to be ashamed anymore because Jesus took my shame. If I begin to allow myself to feel shame because of the sin that I've committed in the past, it means that I'm not getting the gospel. Because Jesus goes to the cross to take my sin and take my shame and take my guilt. And if I pick it back up and take it with me, I'm rejecting the gift of grace. I'm rejecting the salvation that he offers to me. Young person, your sin, your shame, your guilt, your feelings of inadequacy, they all go to the cross. And Jesus says, forgiven, accepted. And you are now my family. I'll never reject you. I'm never going to send you away. You are accepted, young lady. You are accepted, young man. In Christ, through Christ, that is your hope. That is your joy. That is your salvation. Put it all on Jesus. Stop reading books that you're enough. I'm not going to read a book called You're Enough. I'm going to read books that says Jesus is enough. That's the book I want to read. I'm not going to read books that say, uh, you're a a bad dude. You're you're so amazing. And you're just, you're, you're a whatever, whatever bad language they use to identify that. I don't want to read that book. I want to read how sufficient and trustworthy King Jesus is. That's the book I want to read. I can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him. He's worthy of your affection. Your salvation, young person, let me let me clarify something that some people get wrong. Your salvation is not just about look, I get to be right with God. I don't have to go to hell. That's part of it, but you're missing something. No, notice the, the verbiage here in this next verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and 18. Ah, thank you. Oh, nope, too much. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're in Christ. You're placed into this new reality, new creation. Here we go. The old is passed away. Your guilt, your shame, your sin, your feelings of inadequacy, your self-worth, it's gone. The new has come. All this is from God who, get this, through Christ reconciled us to himself. Salvation is not just my sins forgiven, I don't go to hell. Salvation is my relationship with God, the one for whom I was made, has been restored. I don't have to be ashamed because The one that I would be ashamed before has accepted me. I don't have to feel inadequate anymore because the only one whose opinion matters has accepted me. I don't have to feel anxious any longer because the sovereign king of the universe has accepted me. And he's promised me in Romans 8, he's going to work all things together for his glory and for my good, no matter how much it might hurt in the short term. God has granted us a great salvation, which brings us to newness in Christ, love in Christ, a new reality in him, guilt, shame, self-worth, anxiety, stress, fear of man, all of that can be put on the cross. And we can walk in newness of life. That's the gospel, young person. Reconciliation with God, all dealt on the cross. You are accepted. Sins are forgiven. Shame removed. Guilt has been cleansed. Your self-worth? You want to know if you're worth something? All you have to do is look at the shed blood of Jesus on the cross to realize your life possesses infinite value, not only because you're made in God's image, but now when you are in Christ, you are doubly precious to God. He says, "If the birds, if I care for the birds of the air, I feed them every day, am I not going to feed you? If I clothe the grass of the field with flowers and beauty, which is here today and gone tomorrow, am I not going to clothe you? Am I not going to care for you? This is the reality of salvation. This is the place to live, young person. This is where you want to put all of your hope, put all your chips in, okay? I don't want to, I'm not encouraging gambling. Put all of your, all of your trust on that, that. That's where you go. Okay, I need to, I need to, I need I'm getting excited here. Let me land the plane. Okay. In uh, Mumbai, there is this place that is called Antilia. It is the most expensive home in the world. Want to know how much it costs? I'm glad you asked. $1 billion. $1 billion, this thing. A $1 billion for this place. Well, what kind of, what kind of uh, activities can I do? There, What kind of things does it offer? I'm, I'm glad you asked. Um, he lives there with his wife and three children. Only Three. It is 400,000 square feet, 40 stories high, three helipads, because, you know, when you've got a helipad, one's not enough. When I'm flying, I usually fly to one of my three helipads too, so I get it. Three (laughs) helipads, 50-seat cinema, six floors of parking, a yoga studio, a dance studio. I know these aren't the same thing. A yoga studio, a dance studio, a ballroom, ice cream room, A snow room that, get a snow room that literally makes man-made snowflakes. Snow room. Here's one, just one of the floors here that you might see. It's just a little bit, a little bit. (laughs) super opulent. Yeah, it looks like grandma's house. Okay. But, get this. Kind of like when you roll up into Beverly Hills. You guys ever go to Beverly Hills? No no one? Okay. Okay, roll up to Beverly Hills and you'll notice extreme and extravagant wealth. And you go a couple blocks, and you'll notice extreme and extravagant poverty. It's not too different in Mumbai. In fact, in Mumbai, they have 6.5 million people residing in these, uh, the, these homes that are basically just concrete and, and tin roofs. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's uh, sick and sad and awful and all, all the kind of things that you would expect. But how about... If this guy said, you know what, I'm going to go pick a couple people out of these slums, and I'm going to take you from there, and I'm going to invite you to live in my mansion, my billion-dollar mansion, like this guy would be hailed as one of the greatest philanthropists of all time to do something like that, right? And these people that he would do that for, they'd be like, you're, you're basically a god to me, which, I mean, I can understand that. That would be amazing. But I don't want you to look at that and think, man, Absurd, that would never happen because that's exactly what happened except to a far greater degree when God pulled you out of the sewer and said, come and live with me, son and daughter. Be my son, my daughter. Be my child, never to be abandoned, never to be thrown out. You are forever mine if you would but only accept the gift of grace that he offers. It's better. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because of our great sin, our only hope is a great savior. Young men and young women. if you're a Christian, I want to challenge you to love this gospel more, to study your sin and to study the grace of God being expressed in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, Let me challenge you tonight to count the cost and see why this makes all the sense in the world and to realize that any other bet you might make is to say, you know what, I don't want to live in the billion-dollar mansion. I'd rather live in the slums of spiritual poverty. That's the choice. It's not. It's not a. It's not a like, do I want to live in this mansion or this mansion? Do I want to enjoy this really nice neighborhood or that really nice neighborhood? No, no. The option is heaven. You get God. You get billion-dollar spiritual riches, or you can have poverty-stricken uh, spirituality that can come from the. You know, you're you're enough book kind of things or manifestation uh, psychology or psychobabble about how to think better of yourself. No, that's false. That's fake. It's misleading. Thrust yourself your entire self on the mercy and grace of King Jesus, who is ever ready and willing to forgive you of your sin. Repent, turn from your sin and put all of your trust in King Jesus, who is worthy. He is worthy. I love the song. Is he worthy? Yes, he's worthy. Like when we sing that song, is he worthy? Is he worthy? And like at the by the time you finally get to hear his words, like, yes, just someone say it. he's worthy. <laughs> like, I feel like it's blowing up in me. That's how I feel right now. You gotta feel, is he worthy? Yes. Yes, he's worthy. In fact, he's so worthy. He's worthy of not only your life, but your death, young person. If our government were to come after churches and start putting guns at people's heads, yes, it's worth it. Die for that. It's worth it. Because of our great sin, our only hope is a great savior. Pray that you love him and trust him more tonight. Let's pray. God, we want to understand more than we ever have what this glorious gospel teaches us. Lord, we're, uh, we're so amazed that you are the God that you reveal in scripture, holy, which means that you're transcendently different than us. And not only that, God, you are morally perfect and pure, more pure than we could ever even fathom. And that puts us at odds with you. And that's a scary place to be because like Isaiah, we could easily pronounce woe is me. When we look at ourselves, God, we think about the words that we say or we think about the thoughts that we have or even the actions. We don't even talk about our actions, God. We're just talking about thoughts and words. If we looked at our actions, that would terrify us as well because we know we're guilty. But praise your name, God. You gave us a sacrifice that is worthy, a great salvation, a great savior who willingly went to the cross and died in our place, satisfying your righteous wrath and now giving us new access into your kingdom. Adoption as sons and daughters who can never be kicked out of the house. We're never gonna grow up and be pushed out. We are always going to be your sons and daughters for those who receive the grace and mercy of King Jesus. And I pray tonight, God, that many would if not for the first time, God, but in their hearts, just in their minds, resolving to live in the reality of the gospel. That acceptance, that grace, that mercy, and letting that propel them to incredible feats of obedience. Lord, for unbelievers, I pray that tonight would be a new night for them. They would see the beauty of Jesus, would long for his acceptance, and would tonight seek it and receive it let this ministry, let True North be a ministry known for loving Jesus radically and living out that love in humble, dependent obedience by his spirit. That's what we want, God. Let that be the case for us. Lord, we love you. I pray now as we sing in response to you that you would help us to sing from who we are in the depths of our heart with authenticity, Lord, with genuine sacrifice in our songs and in our a praise to you, God. Let this be real. Help us, God. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen.